and hello and welcome to Writers on Writing on KUCI FM in Irvine. We're broadcasting from the University of California Irvine campus and we're on the web at KUCI.org and on iTunes at New, uh, no, not News Talk Radio, at College Radio. Changes back and forth, but this week we're at College Radio and today is Wednesday, June 20th, 2012. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. And as always, Writers on Writing focuses on authors, agents, and poets and the books they create and sell. Um, today, my guest for the entire hour is Joan Shankar. Gladly she's here for the entire hour. And uh, if you have any questions for her as we go along, you can text them to me at 949-337-2752. There's a lot to say about Joan, and, and if you can believe it as I read her bio, I've abbreviated this. She is so accomplished, it's uh, mind-boggling how she's gotten all of this done. Joan has been called America's most original female contemporary playwright. She's the recipient of more than 40 grants, fellowships, and awards for her comedies of menace, including seven National Endowment for the Arts grants. Joan has been playwright in residence at universities, artist colonies, and the London Theatre Company. Signs of Life Theatre was named after her play, and a road in Pownall, Vermont has been named after her. Her published plays include one of the most widely produced and studied plays in the history of theater, written by women, Signs of Life. She has had more than 500 productions of her work on stage, radio, and video, and her short stories have been published in several anthologies. Signs of Life, Six Comedies of Menace, a collection of her plays was published in 1998 and was a Wesleyan University Press bestseller. Truly Wild, The Unsettling Story of Dolly Wilde, Oscar's Unusual Niece was published by Basic Books, Perseus in New York, Virago Press, Little Brown in London, and Random House, Mondadori in Barcelona in 2000 and 2001, and was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award. Her literary biography of Patricia Highsmith, The Talented Miss Highsmith, The Secret Life and Serious Art of Patricia Highsmith, um, was published by St. Martin's Press in 2009, Joan edited and wrote an introduction of Patricia Highsmith's selected novels and short stories just published by Norton. She lives and writes in Paris and Greenwich Village, New York, and uh, she was on the show with my co-host Marie Stone some time ago when the Highsmith biography was published in hardcover. And now that it's in paperback, um, along with this new collection of Highsmith stories and novels, I wanted to have Joan back on, and luckily uh, she agreed to do that. Welcome back, Joan. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> okay, um, how have you gotten all of this done? Are you just the most disciplined person in the world or the most driven? I got deeply exhausted listening to you, <laughs> those things. I'm very disciplined, and then I have long periods of, as any writer does, of seeming utter inaction where I'm lying around looking at the ceiling and something is taking its course. I don't know what. I think I get a lot done while I'm sleeping. I think most writers do. Uh, I like to relegate things to dreams. Dreams often produce the images I need. And it's just luck. And um, the fact of sitting down at the same place at the same time every day, whether the work comes or not, habit has a lot to do with getting things done. Um, if you if you habituate yourself to the work, it will eventually come. Mm. You cannot wait for inspiration. Mm-hmm. How does the habit change when you go back to Paris? I know you're leaving for Paris again tomorrow, is it? Um, not that soon, thank God. But soon. Uh, early next week. So how, um, does, how do things change? How does your well, discipline change? Paris is a city in which not much discipline needs to be exercised. It was made for writers. New York is a place where I don't really like to write, but I find that I'm, I'm, I must write here now since I no longer have a country house. And um, the elect electricity in the air in New York, not to mention the hostility and the number <laughs> of people, um, turn any creative artist into um, a martial arts expert. You're always fending <laughs> off what's coming at you. Mm-hmm. 
rather than taking things in. In Paris, where things are a lot slower, where there are very many fewer people, where buildings are rarely higher than six stories, uh, where the sky is omnipresent, I find that I can breathe more deeply, that um, the writing is just easier to access whatever wherever whatever subterranean depths I have to go to to get to it the dive is straight down it's just not a problem hmm. that's that's really interesting um, it's interesting just what you said Paris was made for writers and uh, oh it's it's yeah. the place where if you know every American writer tries to give herself or himself uh, a present of Paris if they've, if they've had any success at all. It's just, you just still feel that it's a place that respects the fine art of writing. Mm. And um, you can still sit in a cafe. You can no longer smoke in that cafe, mm-hmm. but you can sit in a cafe with your cup of coffee and your notebook or your iPad all day long. Mm. And take your notes. Well, well, we have so much to talk about in this hour. I'm, I'm so glad you're here for the hour. Um, you know, I think what originally made me want to want to have you on again and talk with you, as opposed to listening to Marie's wonderful interview with you, is that I um, started reading the the Ripley series. Um, I've been reading. Um, I'm on book three, I think. Ripley's Game, I think it might be called, and and. Um, and so I became so interested in Highsmith and then became interested in your interest in Highsmith and then wondered how fascinated would a biographer have to be with her subject to write such a, a deep, in-depth, um, footnoted book. The, the Talented Miss Highsmith is such a huge biography and it's, I, I think it has to be the most interesting one I've ever attempted to read. Um, I'm a bit into it, and it's it's a kind of book I want to savor. I, I listen I, or read her her Ripley series. I go back to your biography, and I love it. Um, and then you edited the new Co- Norton collection of her works. Talk about how your fascination with Highsmith began, and when you knew that um, you would have to write a biography of her. Well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. I appreciate anyone who reads the work and understanding it likes it. Uh, I, my fascination with Highsmith began in repulsion and terror, two of her favorite emotions. I didn't exactly choose her work. It's with biography, if your connection is deep enough, it's as though the subject chooses you. I, um, uh, having read her in a casual way earlier on in life, I didn't really understand what I was getting into. I was hoping to find a subject that would, frankly, keep me in Europe. Highsmith, although raised in New York, born in Texas and raised in New York, was a, an almost lifelong expatriate. And I live a somewhat expatriate life. I spend a good half of my time in Paris and other countries. And that that kind of displacement was really interesting to me. But when I began reading Highsmith's work with real attention and understood the the you know, the abnormal psychologist that she was and the length she was willing to go to bring back the nerve the news from the ends of her nerves. I was, uh, you know, the the fascination was certainly intermixed with an awful lot of repulsion. There are things she deals with and and construes, and parts of herself which are horrifying. And until I found um, a way to access them, I didn't think I'd be able to do the book. But. Once I saw her great comedic possibilities, and she's really one of the funniest characters I've ever dealt with, um, she's so extreme that it's become almost easier to access her through laughter than through anything else. Once I found that, 
I started having an awfully good time with her. Um, and there's the fact, too, that she's intensely theatrical. Um, and I come from theater, and so theatrical characters are really interesting to me. Also, she says and does in her work, Concealed in Plain Sight, things that almost no women writers, certainly mid-20th century women writers, said and did. That also is interesting. Um, the fact that she was miscategorized as only a crime writer, only a suspense writer, nothing wrong with being only a crime writer. I would put Marcel Proust, Henry James, and Dostoevsky in that category, too. Um, but it's the only qualification that bothered me. She, she was much else. So there was plenty to do, plenty to dig out, plenty to to find and that's you know that's the that's the wonderful thing about life writing um if you've ever enjoyed being a sherlock holmes and i think every kid who read read arthur conan doyle at some point and imagined herself or himself since sherlock is virtually as close to genderless as you could get um, it's easy to imagine yourself a brainiac Sherlock Holmes to f and find things. You can do that as a biographer, and that's tons of fun. Highsmith had covered up her trail very successfully, so I had a, a great fun being Sherlock Holmes, too. And I hope I brought that attitude to the biography as well. So how much then did you have to research and read her material and, and go into go into her life before you began writing or did did you uh, do well, it only an, so an much? enormous amount actually um, one is always forming sentences and phrases and I took voluminous notes but she had the largest archives in the Swiss National Library 150 linear feet they run most of them in her tiny crabbed handwriting I had to read just about every page and look through every photograph I talked to 300 people around the world about her and talked to them many times too because when you're conversing with people it usually takes three or four conversations to break through the stories they've told all their lives and to come to some deeper understanding, something they haven't said even perhaps to themselves about this person they know. So it, it was an enormous amount of work. And before I started writing, I had to memorize all that because uh, I wanted to command it completely to make the book a real literary production, which means that I wanted to be able to produce metaphors that were appropriate to her life. And the only way to do that is to, you know, completely submerge yourself in every aspect and come up an expert. So that's what I did. The book now knows much more than I do. <laughs> Personally, I've forgotten quite a bit of it because a lot of it is hard to live with. Mm -hmm. But um, she, her, she's so eccentric and such an outsider artist that I was able to also innovate the form of biography, which is the essential thing I'm interested in doing. I believe that in order to bring new information to people, you have to do it in new forms as well. And I think I found some new forms that were appropriate to the material. And that was tons of fun for me. Yeah, you know, uh, well, before we go on, you out there, you're listening to Writers on Writing on KUCI-FM in Irvine. I'm talking with Joan Shankar. She's the biographer of Patricia Highsmith and and so much more, which you can find out on her website. Um, such an extensive biography in, in uh, acting, playwriting, and so much more. Um I, I wonder if if uh, our listeners know that she wrote Strangers on a Train or uh, you know they the don't. Ripley series. You know, I mean, she was sort of under the radar that way. I think very much so. When you're an expatriate writer, um, that's generally what happened. Her very first book was Strangers on a Train. She had 
the brilliant idea of having two men, and most of her work was concerned with the uh, alter ego relationship between two males. Uh, her, although most of her relationships were lesbian, she was, we can safely say, a misogynist, a woman full of contradictions. Um, and so for me, uh, you know, an ardent, a feminist to my fingertips, it was very interesting to work on her for many reasons. Um, Strangers on a Train, that wonderful idea of two men exchanging crimes. They would each murder for each other and therefore cover their tracks. The idea came to her on a walk with her mother and stepfather, the two people in the world most likely to drive her to thoughts of homicide, so a perfect idea. Um, and it came to her very young, and she published that book at 29, and that's what got her her categorized as a crime and suspense writer, whereas, in fact, she's not a crime writer at all. She's a, uh, she's a punishment writer. Her, her criminals suffer the tortures of the damned. It's all about, she offers us the most extensive anatomy of guilt in the history of American literature. She's a real psychological novelist. Yeah, she is. Well, you know, as I was reading, as I'm reading um, this third Ripley book, I am wondering, and you mentioned this a little earlier, I'm thinking, well, what genre is it exactly? It's suspense, but it's not pure suspense. It's mystery, but it's not totally mystery. It's noir, but it's not really noir. Um it, it's sort of all of those things, plus her wonderful style and 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 literary sensibilities. I mean, h- how do you talk about it? I call her an outsider artist, mm-hmm. which I think is the uh, is the best way to go about describing her. She never set out to be a crime writer. She set out. I mean, there are certain things she did commercially, and I uncovered her seven year career as an as a comic book writer. She was the only woman writing scripts for comics during the golden age of American comics. She was writing for superhero comics, among other, among many other kinds. And so, of course, the whole alter ego idea, which nobody traced this back before I was able to find all these wonderful old comic book writers who remembered her. No one, no one understood that her alter ego semi-suppressed homosexual pairings of males easily trace back to the comics. Um, And um, so the genre, well, she's noir-ish, certainly. That would be as close as we could go. This is a woman, you have to remember, who from the age of 12 perceived that she was a boy trapped in a girl's body. Mm-hmm. So every single thing about her crossed lines. Uh, she made many anti-Semitic statements privately. She didn't publish them, but privately. And half her lovers were Jews. And by the way, she also got a Jew as a biographer, so uh, (laughs) these things do even out. Um, She adored women. They were her muses. But she spent six solid months in psychoanalysis trying to be cured, cured of her homosexuality, and regularized her word so that she could marry the... British novelist she was engaged to during the time she wrote her only lesbian novel. Hmm. Um, everything about this woman is a contradiction. She said, deep in my heart are two opposing swords, mm-hmm. a, or a sword with two handles. And for every action she did, she also created an opposite reaction that balanced it. This is a woman for whom ambivalence was a steady state of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very hard being Patricia Highsmith. 
Well, it's interesting what you say early on in the book about how she would um, she would write letters letters to to politicians or to newspapers or to whomever state officials and and um, counterfeit her own identity. Utterly, she counterfeiting was just one of her favorite things to do. In all her books, she distributed, as all writers do, bits of herself, but she deeply buried crucial things in her life, in her work. And I am, I'm looking at a suitcase now packed full of her work because I'm taking it to France with me. I'm at work on one more little piece about Highsmith, and perhaps not so little, showing just how she buried a really crucial part of her life that nobody knows about um, in a novel. Uh, just an extraordinary thing. And that's what she did. That's how she, she count everything about her was counterfeit. In this Highsmith anthology I edited for Norton, I um, included a short story about a man who collects counterfeit art. Uh, called The Great Card House, which she wrote early on. And it turns out that he has also had most of his limbs replaced with counterfeit limbs, too. <laughs> I mean, counterfeiting <laughs> came as naturally to her as it did to Oscar Wilde, let's mm-hmm. say, whose great essay on counterfeiting would have been an influence on her. Well, it's interesting to... Um you know Tom Ripley, the the main character in in those five or six novels. Um, he is all about disguise. He is all counterfeit. Um, he starts out a petty grifter. He's good with numbers. He murders the, a man he's sent to rescue in Italy. Takes over his identity, and a man, by the way, his only obvious love. Uh, He takes over his identity, becomes enormously successful international criminal. And by the way, the more successful Ripley gets, the less good that those Ripley books become. Her very best Ripley book was the first one, Mm -hmm. The Talented Mr. Ripley. I'm also fond of Ripley Underground, which is a kind of masterpiece of uh, of counterfeit, all about counterfeit paintings. Ripley himself, of course, collects counterfeit paintings. He prefers the counterfeits to the real ones. He sets himself up in his second book. He actually marries an heiress, but they don't share the same bedroom. He's always off with the boys, and her preferred trip is with a girlfriend, uh, adventure vacations mm-hmm. on cruise ships. So um, he's a counterfeit in every sense of the word. Well, we're going to take a real short break, and, and we will be back in a minute with more Joan Shankar and more talk about biography and Patricia Highsmith and so much more. So stay with us. Don't go anywhere. to see you go Come back baby Let's talk it over One more time My heart's full of sorrow Mama aching tears Gone 24 hours child Seemed like a thousand years Come back, baby, let's talk it over one more time.
know, little darling, won't want bet in a day. Let's talk it over before you go away. Come back, baby. Let's talk it over one more time. Signals, the only weekly news commentary radio broadcast that features a dog named Molly. Weekly Signals, with Nathan Callahan and Mike Kaspar. News with a bite. Friday mornings at 8 here on KUCI 88.9 FM, radio that keeps on giving. Views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. And welcome back to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus. We're on the web at KUCI.org and on iTunes at College Radio. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and I've been here with uh, Patricia Highsmith's biographer, Joan Shankar, and there's so much more about Joan on her website um, under her name. So if you want to know more and see what else she's been up to, visit her website. Hello again. Hello. I want to say I, I love the author photo of you at the beginning of uh, the the talented Miss Highsmith. What a wonderful author photo. <laughs> That's just Oh, great. my little cigars. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. Well, you, I can't tell you how many newspapers refused to print that photo because <laughs> I was holding a lit cheroot. Really? In my hand. Yeah, most annoying. Yes. Um, the censorship of habits in this country truly bothers me. I'm an adult. I'm allowed a cigar or two a day if I want one, as long as I don't uh, interfere with anyone else's breathing space. And um, I have to say, even in Ireland, when I um, was on a book tour there, they printed that photo and they photoshopped out the cheroot <laughs> and so we got double publicity because they the publishing company protested vigorously and so it was printed again the next day with the cheroot in so fine with me <laughs> so your hand was just sort of hanging up there it was just hanging there i don't know what what i was it it was just there <laughs> What could they have imagined I was doing? I have no idea. It was hysterical. About to sneeze, maybe. <laughs> really, it's. Oh no! I mean, I I don't smoke, and you know, I I didn't I didn't connect it though with that. You know, I just thought, what a perfect photo. You know, it's beautiful. It is. Um, it it's taken by a wonderful photographer of playwrights named Susan Johan, who, whose exhibition of playwright photos tours the United States. She's got an exhibition of 50 of us, and um, they're all very expressive. Interesting. But, um, nope. Uh, <laughs> American papers won't, in general, print that photo. Hmm. So we have a second one. With I, I, They print a photo of me with a knife in my hand. <laughs> But not with a little lady cigar. Interesting. Well, that's, no. that's well, too bad. Welcome to the world as we live <laughs> in it. Well, days. you know, back to uh, back to the talent and Miss Highsmith. I think it's interesting. Um, early on, too, you talk about how she detested journalists. She did indeed, uh, but not. She wasn't foolish enough not to be able to use them to mm -hmm, her. Mm -hmm. no to her best event. She did. She couldn't stand to be queried. Her feeling of guilt for having been born was larger than the body weight she bore. So any interrogation immediately put her 
in the witness stand of a trial for her life. She was, in general, dreadful to journalists, except those she liked, and and there were a few whom she liked very much and who had very fond memories of her and who respected her. But I've seen videotapes and heard cassette tapes where she simply abrogated an interview right in the middle and walked out because she didn't like the, the question. Hmm. And yet she, you know, like all writers, was deeply irritated when she didn't get the right kind of publicity. Mm -hmm. So this is a woman who all her life had to have everything both ways because of her ambivalence. And often you cannot have everything both ways. So her frustration level was enormously high. And, um, you know... You wouldn't want to be a journalist in a small room with Patricia Highsmith. That's all I have to say. <laughs> you really wouldn't. Huh. She was beautiful. These these uh, photographs of her in her younger years, she's gorgeous. Yeah, she was stunningly attractive in her younger years. And I have had both distinguished old gentlemen and lovely ladies of a certain age tell me with tears in their eyes just how attractive she was and how attractive they found her. And she's a really good argument for not smoking or drinking a lot. She's, of course, she was, you know, mm-hmm. drank wildly to excess all her life. And because round about her 50s, she started looking like, you know, Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Mm-hmm. The transformation is terrifying. Well, she didn't like to eat, right? Um, Correct. She did not. And she describes food in all her books with the utter fascination of someone who is repelled by mm-hmm. it. So her, her, she can, she can of, often sit her characters down to a fine meal. But you will always find something in the description that lets you know just how repelled she was by food. And the funny thing is that like most expatriates, what she yearned for when she yearned for food was something from her native country, since we all understand our countries by eating them. Mm-hmm. So what she really wanted was a hamburger heaven hamburger from New York or a nice barbecued steak the way they used to have them in Texas. And and her writing, her personal journals all 8,000 pages of them in her impossible handwriting, which I had to read in, by the way, five different languages. <laughs> uh, talk about someone who liked to counterfeit herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, putting yourself into different languages, four of which you don't write very well, is a, is a very good way to counterfeit yourself. Uh, her Her diaries and journals are studded with, you know, desire for the kind of food she can't have. Until she died, she was having peanut butter sent to her from Texas. Special kind of peanut butter that she liked, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it's usually junk food that people yearn for when they live abroad, and junk food from their own countries. Mm. Um, so interesting. So uh, mm. she was about as odd as humans can get, and uh, you know it's. Forgive me for continuing the metaphor, but it made a wonderful meal for me. <laughs> it's endlessly interesting in that way. And although you might say, and many have, that I did an absolutely exhaustive job on her, that it would be hard to 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 find more information about her, I have found some more, and it's and it's focused enough and selective enough that I'll probably do one more short, sharp volume about her. Um, because I'm, again, always interested in the form that, by, that any literary work takes, and I think I can, I've got one more new form of biography in me before I move on to the novel that I've been meaning to write for the last 10 years. Mm. Well, I can't wait to read uh, the new biography and I, and your novel and anything else. So always Thank be you. sure to let me know so you can be back on the show. Yes. Um, 
But I want to talk a little bit more about sort of the the nuts and bolts of writing biography. Um, and and one of the questions I have is, how do you organize so much material? Um, I don't know how you work, if it's all on computer, if you print out and then you file. And I mean, how do you deal with such, uh, I imagine, reams of material? Oh, it's murderous, frankly. Um I rue the day I started working on computer. I used to write my plays first by hand, then type them up on an IBM Selectric. And and I wrote a lot less because when you write by hand, it's the connection from your hand to your heart is Mm -hmm. pretty short. When you're funneling it through a screen, I find, and most writers will tell you this, I write four times more than I need to just because I can. Mm-hmm. Typing is so easy and dragging and dropping, and and so it's ludicrous. As I said, I committed to memory everything about Highsmith. It was a Herculean task. I'll never do anything that hard again because it was the only... And then I tried to forget everything, consciously forget everything I knew so that I could sink down into where all the bad dreams are kept and allow me to make metaphors out of it, which is how I write literary biography, associatively. Um, and out of that came the form for the Highsmith book, which was... I pretty much organized it according to her obsessions. She was an obsessional writer, and that was the best way to to uncover her interests. She also loved lists, maps, and charts, so the book is full of lists, maps, and charts. In the middle of, because she was so fixed on objects, and you can find objects throughout all her books, she loved things. Mm In the middle of the book, there are two chapters listing all the treasured objects that are kept in the Swiss National Archives that belong to her. And I put, they're just lists of objects with almost no commentary from me, and I put them in the middle of the book because by then you will know enough about Highsmith to interpret the meaning of those objects for yourselves, and they really resonate. You know, this is a woman who cared more for her special little uh, inspirational objects than almost anything. Like all writers, she set up her desk as an altar. Hmm. Um, I've got altars here and in in New York and in Paris as well and uh, I feel at home at my desks and that's where all writers make their homes is, it, is at their desks it's interesting what you said about organizing a cor- organizing the book according to her obsessions how, when did you figure that out how long and I'd sunk enough into her state of mind to understand how it worked mm-hmm it seemed, uh, you know, it was extremely difficult thing to do. And for those people who like their facts laid out, I included a 40-page chronology at the back. Mm-hmm. I so love that. that. Which totally dispensed with the chronology. It's the most thorough chronology that's ever been assembled of Highsmith's life. And it gives you every important date and time. And you can go back and forth and check with, I mean, the the book itself is full of dates, but this gives it to you straight out like train tracks, if you like that sort of thing, and it's there to consult, because I think both things should be available, but in fact, what tells you what she's like, and for me, a literary biography must do exactly what a play does, which is to put you in the breathing, weeping, laughing, creating presence of the character I'm trying to construe. And that's, and for Highsmith, exploring her obsessions was the best way to do it. So you say for a literary biography, so what would a non-literary biography perhaps look like? Well, I think it might look like the biography of a movie star. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, there are certainly journalistic biographies that don't, 
or I mean, you could write a biography of a literary figure that I would consider journalistic. It would be with no attention to the style of the book, written as you might write a newspaper piece. You know, I think mm-hmm. there is a difference sure. between journalism and literature. And um, for me, attention to form and style in biography is the difference between a literary biography and not. I believe I could write a literary biography of a movie star's life um, by by creating a style that would hold that life most successfully and a form that would express it. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, people don't are not accustomed to treating biography as anything but a parenthesis in the greater sentence of literature, mm-hmm. possibly even a footnote. I, Any form I enter as a writer, I enter as, you know, as an artist, hmm. not as a journalist. The journal, there are many, many wonderful things about journalism. I'm not a journalist, mm-hmm. and I don't have a journalist's instincts, which is to... Um, you know, I, I don't write quickly. I don't write to deadlines. Any editor will tell you that. Any of my editors <laughs> will tell you that. And I, I'm, I'm very interested in innovating form and in writing in my own very identifiable style, which is pretty Ciceronian, if you want to go back to old models. I use clauses, lots of clauses. I'm a metaphorical writer. I move laterally, not, you know, I, I'm given to epigram sometimes. It's what you would call a literary style, mm-hmm. not to everyone's taste, but to mine. Mm-hmm. And like, as Vladimir Nabokov said, um, I, when I imagine my audience, I imagine a hundred little me's. <laughs> All I can write for. Mm-hmm. Well, what... Uh, Let's back up even even uh, further in terms of how this book got sold. Did you do a proposal? Did you just talk? I did do a proposal, uh-huh. and um, um, you know, lots and lots of editors turned it down, not because of the style, all of which they praised, but and here again we have this business of treating biography as a parenthesis in the greater sentence of literature, but because of the subject, no one at that time thought that Highsmith was a relevant hmm. person. And now, of course, I just finished a... Well, I'm just now co- copy-editing the uh, chapter for the Cambridge Companion to American Literature on Highsmith that I was asked to write. She's mm-hmm. been... The biography helped to put her where she should be, which is in the pantheon of American writers, of classical writers. And at that time, which was 10... Ten years ago, no one, ten, eleven years ago now, no one took Highsmith seriously. You know, on the continent, they con- they considered her, you know, a very serious writer. She's a bestseller and also considered as a kind of Dostoevsky mm-hmm. of modern literature. But America hadn't begun to pay the kind of attention to her that it should. You talk about that in the biography. Yeah. Yeah, that she w- it really made her unhappy, of course. Yeah, well, it makes anyone unhappy. Um, and yet, she loved the money that mm-hmm. she got. She she was a real bootstrapper and, uh, you know, a real believer in the American dream, which was the greatest gift of mid-century America to all of us, which is that you go out and you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you earn your money and you earn your right to happiness through doing it's a very old-fashioned Protestant work ethic. And she worked like four sled dogs. There's no doubt about it. Nobody worked harder than she did. I don't know how she did it with all her alcohol intake. Mm-hmm. Beyond me, I, I, I <laughs> half a glass of wine and I'm over the table now. But um, on she went. Yeah. We uh, have a few minutes left with Joan Shankar, the biographer of uh, 
Patricia Highsmith and and the editor of uh, Selected Novels and Short Stories of Patricia Highsmith. Uh, early on, when we first started talking, you talked about habit and that writers need to form habits, writing habits, work habits, and you talked about dreams. Um, you mentioned dreams as being a source of... Uh, Mm-hmm. Of, uh, Even if you don't remember the dream, mm-hmm. the imagery of the dream, I um, I tend to get up very early, and I often get up with a sentence on my mind, and and the sentence will come right out of whatever colors or pictures or shapes of a dream I've had, and I often don't remember the dream, but I but that sentence. I've brought it from one world to another, and it's because I let myself dream. And one reason it's so hard to work in New York is that nobody sleeps very well here. <laughs> the electric energy and, you know, whatever mm-hmm. other toxic nuclear ambition striving for every square centimeter that goes on here really it is the cross current to everyone having a good night's sleep one can sleep very well in paris hmm. and in the country where i lived half my I've spent half my life in vermont sleeping beautifully mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it, i was curious about the road named for you is that where you lived in palno i did uh-huh. it was um i my father bribed me out of the chelsea hotel where i was living very happily um, with a 160-acre farm, which I prudently sold when I when it was clear I was going to be disinherited, and um, lived off the, you know, was able to support myself until I really got really started writing seriously. But I did live. I've, I've spent about half my life in Vermont, and I love it. And and Vermonters have a great appreciation for eccentricity and I think that's why they named the road after me. It was the road that my farm was on. They didn't have to do it. They did it after I left but I I had written a rather famous play called Cabin Fever in Mm -hmm. which which is set on the front porch of an old farm in Vermont, rather like my old farm, and it does use all the names of my neighbors in it, though not their characters. And I think... um, I think they rather like that idea. Mm. So there is a road named Shankar Road in Powell, Vermont, and I'm prouder of that than any literary award I've ever received. Yeah, that's interesting. I love that. I uh, went to school in Vermont and, and always uh, kind of fantasize about returning. Oh, God, it is. It's just, it's such a wonderful place. It's, it's like a small country, like a small <laughs> European country. It's yeah, a Shangri-La, really. And I, everyone who ever lived there wants to go back. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so, wow, we have just a few minutes left. So back to the dream, back to the line. Will you then sit down right away and start writing, or do you have, a, like you said, a specific time that you just hook into it, you do other things I, first? I, and I'm a big believer in sitting. Mm-hmm. You just sit. Now, when I write, writing plays is different from writing biography. Writing plays, I, even though a lot of my plays required research, and um, I could write for three hours a day, and I'd be done, and I know I'd be done. With biography, with all this massive information you have to master, I like the idea of fusing the facts into a kind of you know, literary possibility, retaining the facts but making poetry out of them, that takes a lot longer. I'll sit for 12 hours and produce a lot less than I than I did as a playwright. So it's a much, much longer work for me. And And sometimes months go by where I don't do anything that I like. I may do a lot of things, but it's anyway not about the writing with this, with biography, with long, long, long prose works. It's all about rewriting. Mm-hmm. And if you've got the fortitude, and that's really what it takes, to write badly and then to rewrite until you've written well, and that's what writing well is, it's all about rewriting, then you'll do fine. Mm-hmm. But it really is facing 
you know, facing yourself in all your stages of writing. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just been just wonderful talking with you, and and you've al- already given so much uh, advice, I think, to writers. Any anything else? Any last words you would uh, like to pass on to to the writers listening, whether they be biographers or playwrights or novelists? I'd or? I'd be thrilled if people didn't let go of their pens. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fully equipped with all the electronic equipment any writer needs but there is something about a good fountain pen that if you can remember how to form the cursive handwriting Mm -hmm. uh, you will find that the connection you have to your work is infinitely more direct so I recommend that if anyone's interested in taking advice and I consider all advice pernicious but <laughs> why not give a little anyway um, do both yeah. write by hand and uh, and tap away I and agree. you'll be surprised at how the two can inform and inflect each other well like you said earlier there's there's a more there's a direct connection between the hand and the heart Yep, and uh, you don't go through technology, and it's all there, and you can use technology for your uh, later drafts. But That's at it. least get that first draft down by by hand. That's it. Yeah. Thank you so very much for oh, thank you. It's uh, coming. A pleasure talking back to you. on the show. Thank you, Joan Shankar. Bye bye now. That was Joan Shankar. Her books are wonderful. Her uh, the talented Miss Highsmith is. Uh, just a great read, and I I tend not to be a um, biography reader. I I just I don't read them, and this one just caught me, and I love it. Um, as well as Patricia Highsmith's work in this uh, new collection of short stories and novels, and reading Strangers on Train is is uh, is different than uh, seeing it, of course. Reading reading books and stories um, that movies were based on is always different, so uh, it's worth your time. We're going to go now, and I uh, want to leave you with a quote from the talented Miss Highsmith, and uh, it's something Patricia Highsmith said in 1940. She said, No writer would ever betray his secret life. It would be like standing naked in public. So until next time, thank you so much for listening to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM in Irvine. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. You can find out more about the show and about the Pen on Fire Writers Salon that takes place here in Orange County. The next one is July 17th. Jess Walter, uh, the novelist who was on the show last week, will be our guest. So I hope to see some of you and have a good week writing.